The following episode is from the Bloody Blunts Archive. As a part of November's potluck of past releases, this episode was recorded June 2021 for Pride Month, but here on the podcast, we appreciate queer horror anyone, so enjoy the episode. BBCC episode 54, my realization of the day. The day after our guest today suggested that we talk about The Hunger, it was announced to be remade. But here's the thing, there's already a remake of this movie, it's called American Horror Story Hotel. Check it out sometime, but not now, because right now, it's time to start the episode. Hello, hello. It is me, your boy, Devon Taylor, a.k.a. underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram. And this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. This is a podcast where we take a look at some of our favorite horror films and then we break them down into their smaller subgenres. This is going to be an extra horny episode uh, because we are talking about queer vampires from the 80s. Nothing hornier than that. We are going to discuss The Hunger and Fright Night. Um, and of course, as I have had for the previous episodes, um, I have gathered some of the best guests from the uh, queer horror community to join me in talking about these films. Um, the guest for today is already waiting in the wings. They are a writer with bylines across Bloody Disgusting, Rue Morgue, and many other horror outlets. They are also one of the hosts of the Horror in Session podcast. Uh, welcome to the show, Reina Cervantes. Hi, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm super excited. Um, you know, we've gotten to chit-chat on Twitter about various films. We seem to have some similar taste and some overlap. Um, so I was very excited to uh, get you on the show and 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 I'd heard you uh you crushed it on horror queers. So I was like super excited. I was like, "Oh yeah, I was like this going to be a really good one." Yeah, that episode uh seemed to uh spark a lot of conversation unintentionally. <laughs> Hey, that's what we like. We like, um, you know, uh, getting into some deep conversations, you know. That's what, at least for me, what the weed is for. And then you're already a couple drinks in, so we're going to have a nice, we're going to have a nice good time. Definitely. And especially with this film that we're going to be discussing, it's, or films, I can talk about these all night if you, if people would let me. Oh, yes. Uh, this was my first time watching The Hunger, so I'm very excited to dig into that. But before we get into the movies for the episode, we want to get to know you a little bit more. So um, when exactly did, you know, horror become more of a, a passion for you? And then how important is horror to you as far as being a queer creator? Hmm. I get asked this fairly often, so I'm going to always go with my go-to story for it. Um. When I was about seven years old, my uh, mother and father showed me a VHS copy of Halloween, the original 78 version. And uh, that was that was really the first horror movie I'd ever seen. And it kind of blew my mind when I watched it to the point that, like, we lived up the street from a blockbuster video. 
and after that i would just go like every week and rent any and all horror movies so growing up it was they were kind of like for a while they're like the only movies i watched and eventually i started to get in my teen years and would go see all the saw movies every year in high mm-hmm. school and uh when I did, wanted to be a film writer at first, I wanted to write just about like films in general. I really wanted to kind of get into the award scene, but mm-hmm. uh, that didn't really work out. Not in like a bad way. It's just, it wasn't something I was passionate about. So I kind of stepped back from a little bit and really thought about like, I want to write about movies and create content centered around stuff that I'm passionate about and it, light bulb went off in my head it's like oh horror that's a no-brainer mm-hmm. yeah that's that's kind of similar to me as well like I you know I've always had a general love of like films and stuff I guess like once I like kind of got into the creative space I was same thing I was like oh you know I'll get all my certifications and you know write and critique and you know try to get into the award stuff as well um before I kind of realized that like you know, my passion wasn't, you know, writing about films, but was, you know, trying to write actual films. And um, a funny, um, you know, a, a lot of guests bring up the, you know, video store days, the blockbuster days, the Hollywood video days, the family video days. And mm-hmm. um, uh, an anecdote that like uh, just kind of came to me was so whenever we would always go to the video store when I was a kid, um, I have three younger sisters. Mm-hmm. So, so there's four of us, you know, so it was like, there's four of us, two parents, and we can only get so many movies between us, you know? Yeah. So a lot of the times, even though like, cause uh, my mom was into horror and like my sisters got into horror like a little bit later, um, because they were a little bit younger than me. So mm-hmm. it was like, I always got like outvoted. I never got to like, you know, if I wanted to rent a horror movie, it was either like on a day, like when my sisters didn't get to go to the store that day or I would like sneak it into like the pile and yeah. like I would drop somebody else's like video off and be like, no, let me sneak it in. There. And then they'd be like, Hellraiser, how'd this get in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had to, had to be sneaky about it. Um, but um, you know, the, the great, great days of the, of the video store era. It's yeah. I was talking with a friend that I grew up with in middle school who would go to the video store with me because my mom used to just give us money and say, go up the street and go rent some movies. Fun little fact. We had a Hollywood video and a blockbuster in my town and they were one parking lot from each other. So if one didn't have the movie we were looking for, we would just hop over to the other one. But uh, I was talking with him and I was like, man, the video store days were great. Like we would just watch shit like on a whim, like, Oh, this cover is cool let's watch it exactly yeah whereas now it's like uh what's the rotten tomatoes score like do people like this is it even worth seeking out who made it whereas like back in the day i saw the vhs cover of like american gothic and sleepaway camp and i was like i'm watching this shit tonight (laughs) yeah the 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 influence that the covers had and like it was funny and like you know you mentioned like having access to like blockbuster and hollywood there was a there was a neighborhood that I lived in at one point that had a blockbuster, a Hollywood, but we didn't go to either one of those. We went to this just like unnamed video store. Mm-hmm. I remember it didn't have a name. I remember it, all the videos came in these ugly ass like brown like flesh colored cases. 
Oh my god. <laughs> they like there was just nothing appealing to it and and the structure of this place was really weird. You'd like go in and it was like in the shape of like like a like an octagon and like in the middle where they kept all the kids one, it was like supposed to be like a sectioned off room, but the walls were cages. So okay. it was like <laughs> so did you to go get to the kids section you were like in this like cage entrapment in the middle of the, of the store. It was such well, a bizarre store. <laughs> well, I mean they saw kids for what they are, animals, no I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. Like that's like the overview of like, you know, like, you know, parents are like, yeah, here, go go in there, you know, entertain yourselves for the next 10 minutes, but um, I, I've never been able to remember the name of this store. I could tell you where it is. I, I mean, it's probably gone by now, but like, I just think back to this. I'm like, what was that store? Like, what an odd store. <laughs> it probably got bought by Dana White so that they could reuse the octagon layout. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Like it, it looks, it, it was, it was different carpeting and more chairs away from being a, a, a UFC arena. I could totally see it. <laughs> It's funny because everyone brings up like, oh, independent stores were better than Blockbuster. But, you know, I grew up in a somewhat rural area and actually still live about like 40 minutes outside of Palm Springs, like kind of in the middle of nowhere. I kind of have to stretch the truth and say I'm like from Palm Springs area when everyone asks where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Blockbuster there was not a corporate store. It was a franchisee. So they carried like all the trauma movies and like uncensored horror movies. Like everybody likes to talk about like how in Ichimama Tambien blockbuster cut out like the gay sex scene at the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, I rented that movie from blockbuster from my blockbuster and it was in there. <laughs> I never really had negative like experiences with like chain stores, but I do wish I had like a little independence store when I was younger. I mean, I guess it would, it would be, um, you know, I something I guess I didn't like look at as much. Like I wouldn't have noticed like something like that versus like mm-hmm. now, like obviously one, like I've seen a lot more movies and then two having access to the internet and then like knowing that they like cut out a certain portion, like otherwise, you know, who, who knows when you'd know. So it's like, those were always, um, always interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, bring, bring back those days, you know, everything else in nostalgia is coming back. So you know, I feel like the rental stores, you know, maybe maybe it'll take another 10 years or so, but they'll they'll be cool again. I'm I'm sure of it. Maybe yeah. make make a make one that's a bar. That's uh, it. Yeah. I watched that that last uh, Blockbuster documentary and Ron Funches was on there and he's like there needs to be a video store that's also like a dispensary <laughs> or a dispensary. Yeah. And, and I was like, "Holy shit." I was like, it, "Yeah, if it was like a bar dispensary, like I think one of the Alamo draft houses actually has like a video store, like next to their bar section. Mm. Uh, I believe one of the ones on the East coast, I'd have to like research and find out which one, but I'm always like, why don't more people do that? Also, um, it would just save me money because every time I watch it, I, I want to watch a movie. I end up buying it used from like a record store that I used to frequent out in Arizona mm-hmm. that do online orders. So I always just buy it for like six or seven bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that would be, yeah, I guess it's gonna, it'll have to be like one of those like hybrid businessy type deals, but you know, there's, there's potential out there. I think it'll, everything always swings back around. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
So, um, and before we get into uh, the main movies for the episode, I always give everybody a chance to uh, shout something out that they've watched recently, either that they enjoyed, or maybe it was an alternative pick that we um, aren't going to get to talk about. Um, so, uh, what's something you want to uh, shout out that you've been watching? So, something that I've been watching that's not work-related is, or podcast uh, appearance related at all is uh i've been really getting into like a lot of anime recently which is like another tangent about blockbuster and growing up and getting access to anime like that mm-hmm. but uh i've been i've been watching uh berserk the three like movies that they had and my lord i kind of wish that berserk was more popular because it is like the goriest most violent like anime i think i've ever seen it's also a uh a, a manga or comic series right Mm-hmm. yeah and unfortunately i think uh just this last month the creator of it died and um he oh, passed away no. pretty tragically so everyone's talking about how the manga which has been running since like 1988 is pretty much gonna go unfinished now oh wow dang that is yeah. so tragic like uh like untimely death but then also just like you know your your life's work just like kind of incomplete um yeah it, it's got this real like european like game of thrones vibe to it um i think it's like the total antithesis of what's like cliched anime is um i i definitely think western audiences would love it a lot more um than they do currently um i love it i want to read the manga now yeah it's uh definitely something i want to get into but i'd probably end up start with the movies as well or with the anime as well so um, definitely gonna add that onto my anime list because I mean I don't watch nearly as much anime as I did when I was like younger, but I've been trying to get back into it more days and like especially trying to find animes that like kind of merge my love of anime and horror. So like you know some of these like gorier uh titles. So definitely get throw that on my list. Oh, there is some fucking nightmare fuel in Berserk. I'll just say like it's it's obvious that this anime and manga were like the inspiration for like the dark souls video games oh okay interesting uh yeah definitely want to get into that see what uh see what kind of imagery it has to offer um as far as something i want to shout out is um also not a movie um i want to shout out a series um because we're you know when we get into the hunger um, you know, I'm always intrigued by, um, like alternative takes on vampires, like, um, you know, like just any, any other take that's not just like the, you know, classic, like bite you on the neck fangs, like all the, all the things. Um, yeah. and you know, one of the original, um, Netflix original series, like one of their very first ones, um, when they like first got into like original programming was Hemlock Grove. And it's a nobody really talks about it. I don't really see people talk about it's, it too much. It's good. It's good. We t- we actually just uh, mentioned it last week on my pod. The guest brought it up. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just like I like that one of their first series was just something as like bold and weird as it was. Like is such it's such a bizarre show, but I love it. Um, it has just like these interesting uh, ideas playing on like you know the different like classic monster tropes. And uh, putting their own, you know, uh, gothic spin on it, and like their take on vampires, or in their in their world called upiers, which are like a like another like subspecies of vampires, if you will, and um, the way that they treat them, and like integrate, you know, um, 
you know, sexual desires and uh, primal urges and stuff into it. Uh, very similar to uh, some of the stuff that we see uh, in The Hunger that we'll talk about. So just wanted to shout that out. Um, you know, if you haven't gotten to see a, a younger Bill Skarsgård, see where he uh, kind of cut his horror teeth at, um, definitely check out Hemlock Grove and Famke Jansen. Uh, what a queen in, in that show. They have like one of the best like takes on like werewolf transformation as well. Oh um, yeah. Like it's, it's a really like part of my language. It's a really fucking cool show. <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about some like gnarly imagery, like, um, you know, the transformations, the effects that they use, like so much of it is like, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a trip. Like, uh, and again, like looking back at that, like that, that was one of their like very first originals, like just like putting it out there. Um, so good. So it, there's only three seasons. So if you've never seen Hemlock Grove, uh, go back and check it out. But I would say that we are nice and warmed up to get into our main films for the episode. The Hunger, released in 1983, directed by Tony Scott, who would go on to direct True Romance and Top Gun. Um, this is a pseudo vampire movie of sorts, um, because vampire is never mentioned throughout the film. Um, and the lore behind it has, is never really concretely established in the film, but this is a, um, pseudo vampire movie, um, starring, uh, of course, well, I say starring David Bowie, but it's really not starring David Bowie. Um, I figured out. Um, it's one of those movies that was kind of sold a little bit more, but it's really starring uh, Catherine uh, Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. Um, so what made you choose The Hunger to talk about? Well, I guess technically three reasons. So it, it exists in this weird trifecta of subcultures. It exists in the horror subculture, the queer subculture, and the goth subculture. So like every subculture that's like kind of like outcast from the mainstream the hunger like embodies all three of them to the point that i kind of think this movie was a little bit ahead of its time when it came out yes oh i would i would agree they are 100 like um i was i had some friends over to watch these movies last night actually and they were like wait when was this movie made i was like 83 because it definitely doesn't feel like it it like felt you know also like like some of the you know more art art house horror from like the 70s but -hmm. then like inject it with like this um like unbridled you know giving into the the aesthetic of it all like you know in the 80s people wanted movies with action and things happening and quicker paced you know and quippy dialogue and stuff like that people wanted movies like that people weren't really watching these movies that are just these kind of sink into it hypnotic trance like movies um which is you know people know i love like the neon demon and starry eyes this is my kind of shit right here like i don't know how i've went without seeing this movie in a weird way it plays like those early 90s like sex thrillers Mm -hmm. um like crash and cruel intentions wild things it plays like almost like a prototype to those type of movies oh yeah 100 percent. like you know but those movies kind of later on you know taking out um 
some of the weirder elements, but it's like, that's what makes those, you know, movies more interesting. The ones that do indulge like those weirder elements. Um, the, the opening to this film is everything, um, you know, giving you exactly what you're going to see throughout the film. This just like uber ridiculous, dramatic lighting and the, the quick editing and emphasis on faces and outfits and body parts, you know, and like, you know, highlighting the, the perfect faces of, um, of our titular vampire, uh, couple Miriam and John blasting with this, um, musical performance opening um by uh Bauhaus or Bauhaus however you say it goth bands always have the weirdest pronunciation <laughs> um I I definitely like I like that you brought up that you watched this with friends because I feel like this is a great fucking group movie like I will not hesitate to like oh I'm hanging out with a group of people I'm gonna throw on the hunger and like blow everyone's mind <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, that's what I love to do. Like, this is a movie to, like, throw on and, like, watch people's reactions, you know. But then for me at the same time, too, like, it's like this is when you get, like, into nervous territory with friends because I was like, well, I haven't seen it either. I was like, I don't know what we're in for. But then it just, you know, turned into this experience that we were just like, what? Where has this movie been our whole lives? (laughs) Yeah. See, and as soon as I recommended it, I was like, Oh, I hope he doesn't hate it. <laughs> oh, no. Like, this is, like, 100% like my shit. Like, there's not a lot of talking. Everything is so moody. Um, The contrast between it that's, like, almost, like, you know, like, the monochromeness, it's almost in black and white in a way, except when it does blast you with, like, the colors here and there. Like, um, and the, and the score as well. Like, everything about it. I love that. You know, most of the acting choices are just straight smoldering at one another. Like, this is everything about this is like, this is my kind of shit right here. Would you believe me if I said that I hadn't seen this movie until last year? (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. So I guess my dad had been recommending it to me for years and I just kind of like wrote it off. I was just like, "Uh, I'll get around to it. And then last year, very briefly, when HBO Max launched, it was on there. It was on there for like three weeks or less, I want to say. Um, so I finally gave in and I watched it. And as soon as it ended, I like ran out and bought the Warner Archive like Blu-ray of it just because I was like, oh, no, I need access to this film whenever. Um, it's also, yeah, like you said, it's kind of hilarious that it's like that Bowie gets top billing because like obviously he's Bowie. But uh, he, he yeah, he's not really in this movie all that much. No, it's like he's not in that much. He's not the one doing the opening music number. I mean, like, why not just you have him there already? Why not just have him do it? But um, see, I like that though. Oh, I like how they don't do that. Yeah, true, because that is what you'd like, obviously, expect to happen. Um, but I do love this opening, and as I mentioned in the cold opening of the episode, uh, Ryan Murphy um owes this movie some money. Because, like, the first episode is basically, like, the opening of of this movie when you have, um, when you're watching John and Miriam, like, seduce this couple while the music performance is going on. Um, and then, you know, they end up killing them to feed on them. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, just a typical, typical night in the life of uh, a hot vampire couple, you know, just doing hot vampire shit. Um, but yeah, this is like American Horror Story Hotel is also one of my favorite uh, seasons of American Horror Story. So uh, immediately when we're watching the opening, we're like, oh, these are they're the same thing. 
I, I need to actually see that season. I I'm terrible. I legit haven't watched since like Coven. Yeah, I mean, there's only Freak Show and Hotel, which come afterwards. Those are the only ones worth. And then after that, you can kind of stop. But like, I mean, if you love this movie, then like, you know, Hotel is definitely like up your alley. I have to check it out. That's the one with Lady Gaga, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like, that one's instantly on my list now. <laughs> so I like basically imagine this opening scene, but with Lady Gaga and Matt Bomer. Equally hot. I concur. I concur. Um, I do love uh, Catherine Deneuve in this movie. Um, she's usually really known for like her pinkies up type films like Umbrellas of Cherbourg and uh, uh, Belle du Jour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually did not recognize her in this movie until like like somebody pointed it out online. And I was like, good God, that's the same woman. <laughs> I mean, but it, it, like, makes sense, though, because, like, she very much brings that, like, classy, regal energy to her, you know? Obviously, we learn later that she's been around for a long time, and she was Egyptian royalty. Talk more about that later. But... Mm. <laughs> Um, but in the, but in the performance of this, like in the way that she just like her physicality throughout the film, like she just kind of exudes this like regal confidence to her. Um, so it like kind of makes sense, like coming from her acting background and then just like between like her and David Bowie and Susan Sarandon, like they have also like chose like three leads that just have these like perfectly cut and shaped faces, which like, you know, just like kind of lends itself well to, selling them on being these like you know otherworldly creatures or whatever they are but without having to like show it as much like be showy about it it's it's like a legit like a a moving like work of art or painting um in the way that everything's framed and lit it all feels very intentional i know some people like to say like tony scott rest in peace um isn't necessarily like up there like as good as his brother Ridley Scott but honestly after watching this movie and Top Gun and True Romance it's like how can you not think that <laughs> like Tony Scott's got some skill like it's like and it's interesting like you know the different uh filmmaking styles between the two of them but uh Tony Scott he's got hits like he like knows how to make a movie um and like all all the like aesthetic choices like just like i couldn't tell you whenever we're watching the movie how many times we're just shouting out the drama because like (laughs) like that's like something i like look for like in like photography that i enjoy like i enjoy like high drama photography and like that's what this movie felt like the uh cinematography throughout done by uh steven goldblatt intentionally moody like kind of gives this noir vibe um, because this movie, it's it's all vibes. There there is a story going on, but it's kind of hard to follow. But it's also like fill in the gaps yourself. Um, but you know, because like you're watching this film, and um, basically you you gather, you know, like throughout the film that it's like okay, they're this couple, they've been doing this for a while, um, you know, for hundreds of years, but her for even longer, and then all of a sudden. Uh, David Bowie's character John starts aging rapidly so it's like we don't even get uh, David Bowie's face in most of this movie because like we get re- like the David Bowie we know for like three scenes and then after that it's him buried in this like grotesque old man makeup which is just so uncomfortable looking it's uncomfortable looking in once you realize that like we never got to see Bowie kind of reach that age in real life to look naturally like that. So, True. you know, 
in a weird way if you want to see old man bowie like this is kind of the only way to say it and to see it um which is kind of sad but yeah the the makeup is is super good in this movie um it's actually one of my favorite aspects of it which it was done by dick smith who did uh the exorcist Mm, interesting yeah he did uh i'm looking right here it said uh he did uh films such as the godfather the exorcist taxi driver scanners he's got quite the resume and then it's funny that you brought up uh steven goldblatt like saying his like cinematography was vibes because he ended up doing the joel schumacher uh, batman forever and batman and robin and those movies visuals are nothing but vibes yes um all the connections are making sense now um, because I mean, Batman Forever, one of my one of my favorites, um, and yeah, like this is, I mean, it's that's what this movie is like, packed to the brim with it. It's vibes, but there's enough story and like mystery to it, um, to grasp onto, um, mm-hmm. you know, and the makeup game, not even just on the special effects on David Bowie, but just like the makeup in general, like Miriam's oh, makeup yeah. is always on point. Susan so Sarandon's good. makeup always on point. I swear this like goth subculture, like one of the most emergent pieces of it for shaping the entire scene had to have been this movie. It had to have been. Oh yeah. I mean, and then um, like, like uh, the styling in general is like very reminiscent of like German expressionism, like which was, you know, pretty hot in the eighties, but then like mixing mm-hmm. it with the goth vibes in here, like this like high class goth vibe, like uh, the veils, Wearing veils in public, are we ever going to normalize that? Oh my goodness. It's weird because people always say they want a vampire movie like this. And I'm like, it's, you got it. It's it's The Hunger. It came out in 83. <laughs> it happened. And then it's like, so that is like, you know, interesting. That's like, yeah, people crave this. And then it's like, okay, like, and it's sad that it has to resort to it being remade for it to like kind of get that audience. Because I mean, this is a movie I don't really hear people talk about much. Um, it's I, I think that's kind of due to the like it's not very accessible like it's blu-ray releases through warner archive which they only make a certain number of those and then the whole it was on hbo hbo max for like three weeks it's like kind of hard to obtain lately yeah no the the accessibility definitely um plays a huge factor like i have movies that are like sitting on my list that like you know popular movies that i just like cannot get to like i have not been able to find possession for the life of me oh um, god same <laughs> like geez louise i just i've never seen it and i want to see it so bad so it's like mm-hmm. yeah the, uh, accessibility definitely makes a difference but you know this is you know also a movie that again it's like you know when you try to sell somebody on it's like also how are you get described this you know it's like Oh yeah, you want to watch the sexy vampire movies where, uh, well, they they make out and stare at each other quite a bit, um, but then it does bring in, um, these interesting ideas, um, you know, with the uh, queer themes within it, but then also the themes of um of vitality, but also themes of control as well. Um, so like basically after, um, and this is your guys' cue again. We've already kind of said that's hard to find, but I do recommend finding this movie you can just rent it on amazon prime like for a few bucks um but go and watch this movie if you have not seen the hunger and then come back listen to the rest of the episode because now we're gonna spoil the rest of it now 
Um, so yeah, so David Bowie dies, and mm. it's interesting because like she already has a coffin ready for him, so it's like okay, she already knew this was coming. Then like puts him in a coffin. There's another coffin in there, and at first I was like, oh, she has a coffee ready for herself too. Like she knows this is coming. That's cute, and that's like no, no, no. We find out later like she's been doing this for a hot minute. Um, so you know she stumbles across um. Susan Sarandon's character, uh, Dr. Sarah Roberts, who is a scientist who uh, studies aging. So she is like, okay, let me see if I can figure out like what's going on and figure out with her, which leads into um, some seduction, um, which I love this um, scene whenever Susan, uh, whenever Sarah goes over to Miriam's place to go mm-hmm. check in on John. This, um, you want sexy lesbian vampire shit? I mean, the vampire shit's not really going on, but you get, like, this is just top-notch right here. Yeah, this is, like, a very, like, lesbian and bisexual movie, in case people haven't picked up on this uh, so far. And it's it's funny, because, like, most vampire movies, I feel, do, like, oh, the lead male vampire seduces, like, the pretty female, and this Mm -hmm. is, like, the antithesis of it of like oh no uh, oh no we're getting like straight up like lesbian woman on woman in this movie with it oh yeah and like miriam is like you know very like dominant too she's a she's a strong like dominant woman like embodying she's a top. yeah she's a top but she's she made bowie a bottom <laughs> straight up like he yeah, was legit he, he was little spooning and everything <laughs> for sure like facts like there's <laughs> no way you watch this movie and you're like oh yeah she she's the bottom in that relationship it's like god no <laughs> yeah so it's like the the way that you know she's embodying those you know traits that would usually be applied to the the male lead vampire um you know being the uh, seducer but she, I mean, just, like, the way that she, like, does it and, like, um, the scene, like, I mean, we were we were howling whenever um, it all starts when Sarah spills the wine on her shirt and it's just spilt wine over a hard nipple. And then, like, Miriam just takes a casual stroll over and just sits down in a chair, like, legs spread and is like, well, undress. And it's just like, oh, 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 Jesus, the control, yeah. the power. It, it like it rides this line the entire time of like oh is it classy or is it like schlocky and i don't think it ever crosses the territory and it's schlocky because it's all done super tastefully it's almost like a proto 50 shades of gray a little bit <laughs> a little bit like for sure like and yeah like i don't think it ever goes over that line like Catherine Deneuve's performance is just like so so pitch perfect for like what was needed for that role but for the tone of this film as well just um that whole scene plays out really cool but it also just like again it's like kind of the implications of you know uh again it's like you know traditionals of vampires like using their sexuality to like kind of help themselves and it's like you know she's obviously kind of seducing a doctor in hopes that the doctor will know something about this like whole aging dilemma that all of her lovers keep facing. Um, but it also like kind of like um, taps into this like theme of like control throughout the film, you know, is like she just continuously moves on, um, 
you know, and knowingly puts, you know, all these people in these situations, like knowing like, hey, I'm going to make you my lover. You're eventually going to die, but I'm going to keep going. And like, um, which is a theme that like kind of is sprinkled out throughout the film. So Catherine Deneuve was no stranger to bringing a sense of eroticism to her roles. Um, as I said earlier, she was like probably most famously in um, Belle du Jour, which is low key, probably one of the horniest movies I think I've ever seen. If you're ever interested in that one, that one's got a really good Criterion release and might even be on the Criterion channel, but don't quote me on that one. Ooh, I will definitely have to uh, add that on because like uh, I'm always in in the mood to watch films like this, like whenever it's like, you know, watching like late at night, I'm just like, oh, I'll watch something just like just cool and sexy, you know, like that's that's what I'm looking for. And like this is like one of those um, one of those movies because I mean, it has all the things you're looking for, all the bisexual vibes. It's got dramatic close ups on nipple sucking. I mean, this is, you know scratching off the uh, all the erotic checkboxes for you like in all around definitely um i think that's it's kind of why it ends up being one of my favorites i mean shades of gray is a comfort movie for me so this one was like easily right added to that category as well oh yeah and it's like i would even put this like in a category as like something like the love which as well or um or this also has like um kind of ganja and hess vibes as well Still need to see that one. Everyone keeps telling me to add it to my list. Another really good one about just very drop dead sexy vampires. Um, definitely uh, check that one out. And it and I kind of find it funny too. Like I don't know if it was intentional, but like I would read it as um, you know this could afterwards. You know it's like you know she seduces Sarah and then quickly is already you know convinced to join her uh in 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 immortality and i'm like i was like is this uh their play at the uh lesbian relationships moving too quickly trope of just like hey we had really great sex that one time you want to be with me forever (laughs) yeah it's like oh just had a good date with a girl i'm moving in later this week (laughs) (laughs) like she's like instantly like you're gonna join me for eternity right and sarah's like yeah sure i'm into it it, it could also play into the whole um I, I saw somebody somebody have this reading on it it could play into the the mythology of uh vampirism uh giving you like the powers of like hypnosis and she's like uh unknowingly like influencing her true and and again like i do like how um they don't really go out of their way to have any explanation for how um the vampire lore mythology works in this film um mm-hmm. we do get a few flashbacks of them like living in um different time periods and then again we see that miriam was like um an egyptian apparently um, <laughs> um so it's like we we that's really all that we know and the fact that um again like vampires never mentioned they don't bite they like use a sharp pendant necklace to to slash people so it's like the it's very loose um as far as the mythology goes but that's where it's fun where you can like kind of play with it too where they put in enough to where people will recognize and watch this and be like yeah this is a vampire movie even though it's not a you know in the strict sense of a vampire movie yeah 100 percent. i think once you establish that there are no rules is where you can really do interesting stuff with the genre yeah and um 
whenever we were watching, one of my friends like guessed like, oh, like those de- um she's like she's like, this ain't the last we've seen of John. John's gonna come back for her and we're like and then we're like, eh, we'll see. I'm like, eh, I doubt it. Did not um see this movie ending in a finale of all of her past lovers like zombifying and reanimating and coming after her. It was that extra sauce that this movie needed uh, to go out with. Um, very, very interesting ending and like her just like she's screaming, I love you all to all of them. And again, just like, you know, she she has, you know, obviously has a warped sense of love and it's more about this control angle um, that they've like kind of been uh, sprinkling throughout the film. It's like seeing the comeuppance on an abuser. Yes, that too. Because, I mean, yeah, yeah when you think of it, like, they, they've all been victims of her, you know, of mm-hmm. her knowing manipulation. And, um, you know, yeah, that finally coming back to you. Um, but, like, you know, just the sheer, um, like, again, like how, like, earlier in the film, they showed, like, a couple coffins, you know. But then, like, mm-hmm. when they show that it's, like, how many lovers she's had, like, how long she's been doing this you know so like also like makes you like kind of that idea of like you know what's eternal life if you're alone you know but at the same time then like you know it has to be uh if you're gonna promise that to someone you gotta come through on it and she obviously uh does not and has no remorse about it so uh miriam is a fascinating uh complicated character in a way i know like no, people are really against the ideas of like sequels or remakes or updates to like movies like this. But in a weird way, I kind of feel like the hunger is kind of primed to be kind of put out there into the horror mainstream, especially because not many people have seen this one. Yeah. I'm not somebody that's against remakes. Um, but it was like, I did get to the end of watching this and thinking, I was like, man, like, this is, I mean, for what it is, for the time that came out and doing exactly what it wanted to do, like, there, this is, like, a, a perfect movie in a way. Like, not not that I would say this is, like, a masterpiece or anything, but it was just, like, I don't know how, you know, what, what angle you would take that would be an improvement on it. However, there is always the case with a remake that's, you know, obviously you always do have the original when a remake happens. And it's either A, we get a creative interpretation on this already interesting film and we kind of have that side by side. Could be like a Suspiria situation maybe. Or it's like the remake is very bad and that reminds people how good that this one is. And then this one will get watched more. So, I mean, win-win. Honestly, I think we're going to get another Suspiria situation with this movie. Um, I'll admit I was one of the first ones that like they're like, the hunger is getting remade and i was like oh god no because like for a lot of people that don't know that remake was actually announced in 2009 and did not have an update until this year oh wow Um, yeah the update being that jessica scharzer is attached uh, to write it and she's a screenwriter known for the l word and ironically american horror story and uh, she also wrote the screenplay to a simple favor oh okay well then now 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 there's something i love a simple favor that's a good move right there yeah same as soon as i saw that that was like her writing credentials i was like oh and she's like kind of involved in the lgbt writing don't quote me but i think she's lgbt herself i'm like oh we can get a really super interesting take on this source material for like a modern era 
Yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely optimistic about it uh, for sure. But yeah, just definitely the timing of uh, when we happen to record this is pretty funny. Um, so we'll have to see um, how the remake fares of it. But as far as my keep it goth, yes. keep it goth, keep it goth. That's all I gotta say. Yes, it it has to it has to be goth, one hundred percent. Keep it goth, keep it moody. Um, but as far as my first time uh, watching this film, absolutely loved it. Had a blast. Highly recommend. So now let's get into our next movie for the episode. Fright Night, released in 1985, directed by Tom Holland, who would go on to direct the first installment of the Child's Play franchise. So we've already talked about that film here on the podcast and uh, talked about Tom Holland a little bit. But this was his directorial debut, starring Chris Sarandon. And uh, Chris Sarandon, um, primarily known at least by me, um, he did do the speaking voice of Jack Skellington in Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, This movie has had many queer readings over the years. And then, of course, speaking of remakes, there was a remake of this film starring Anton Yelkin, Rest in Peace, and Colin Farrell. And it's an interesting um, way there where we have two, um, you know, the remake turned out actually really good as far as like, you know, updating for modern things, but they focused on different things. So it's like, you know, that was like kind of the more direct remake route. So doubt it'd be the way for the hunger, but um, we won't be like actually diving into like deep into the remake here. Um, so on your rewatch of uh, Fright Night, um, what are your feelings on this film? This this is top tier vampire film for me because I like the hunger because it doesn't do like the traditional like vampire like mythology. Um, Fright Night sticks so close to it and it's like it's good. It's campy. The whole movie is just a ton of fun. Um, And it brings back a lot of pretty good childhood memories for me, honestly. I actually didn't see this movie up until, like, I don't know. I think it was, like, maybe eight months ago or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, I I had seen the remake already, like, way before. Um, (laughs) Good remake. Yeah, like, pretty solid remake. Also, fun fact, me and Colin Farrell have the same birthday. Um, Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah, cool. That's a cool guy to share a birthday with. Um, but yeah, the, the remake itself is, I remember I saw that one first. It had no idea that there was a previous Fright Night. And then, um, and then I, you know, would hear about this movie and especially it would come up when people were talking about, you know, queer horror readings. I was like, okay. And then I, you know, finally, finally gave it a watch and, uh, and maybe, you know, I do enjoy this film quite a bit. It definitely gets better on rewatch. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is fine. Um, but I was able to definitely have a lot more fun with it, uh, giving it another rewatch, especially pairing it with, uh, the hunger and, um, but yeah, like, like you said, like this definitely leans into literally all the vampire tropes, um, but has a, has a good time with it. Like it is like, just like a very classic, you know, I have a vampire neighbor living next door, you know, very simple to the point. I mean, it even has a, you know, vampire killer character, but, you know, they do a fun twist on it that, you know, he's just a TV character, but then has to actually, you know, become the real thing in this story. Um, so, yeah, it's like they, they do take plenty of classic vampire tropes, but then, um, you know, twist it into their own thing. One thing that I do dislike about this film 
and it like kind of weighs on quite a bit. I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate Charlie. I think he sucks like a big time. I think Charlie was a lot more likable in the remake. Um, that's not even me just being a big Anton Yelton fan. I just, I just think he was a lot better written in the remake, which is why I think the remake holds up so well because it's got a better lead. Um, there is a lot more better about this one, but I, I will definitely concur with you that Charlie in this movie is a, a little bit insufferable. <laughs> like, I mean, he's just, yeah, like he's insufferable to start with. We don't really get anything about him except for just like these like quirks that he has as far as like when it comes to his relationship with Amy, the way that he talks to his mom, like just everything about him is just, yeah. And like, yeah, the remake definitely does give him some like personality, give him some layers. And then of course, Anton Yelchin's performance as well. Um, but Charlie is the thing that holds this movie back. I mean, luckily once we uh, do get to meet Jerry, and once he's in the film, you know, we get to see plenty of him. And then the second half, this is definitely Jerry's film. And then, you know, then it's all good, you know, because then anytime Jerry's on screen, it definitely makes up for anything dumb that Charlie has said. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think this movie is just like a lot of fun. Like the idea of like kind of the horror movie fan in a way becoming like the hero in their own horror movie. It just sucks that Charlie's like, kind of an asshole yeah like um you know it's definitely like you know this movie like i said it's like very simple and it's portraying like a simple situation that like it's easy to you know inject yourself into so it's like sometimes okay when you have like those like you know blank slate type of characters but like he's a blank slate but he's an annoying blank slate at that too so it's like uh but I did want to touch on, like, this opening scene, you know, he's trying to get Amy to have sex, and then she doesn't want to, and they like, makes her feel bad, um, and it's like, ooh, instantly off the gate, you already suck. But then he notices, um, you know, across the street, his neighbor having it out with, uh, with a gal, and earlier in a couple episodes ago, you know, I talked about um, this recurring theme of, like, voyeurism. Like, does that play into, like, an area of, like, kink and, like, possible, like, you know, sexuality, like, queer culture? Hmm. That's a, that's a touchy one because I'm not one to kink shame, like, at all. But I, I do see what could, like, turn people off of the idea of getting a reading like, like that out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think the original Fright Night is just nothing but sexual tension through like out all of the characters, all of them, just everybody. It's it's there. Like, <laughs> there's no denying it. <laughs> oh yeah, but, uh, I mean, it, more in the way that I think of it is like you know they'll uh, movies will kind of put these like voyeuristic scenes into like more just like kind of explore you know these like inner desires of like you know whatever character that's instilling on like i don't think it like not in the creepy way of like oh you're kind of watching your neighbor but it's also like just this like kind of like him getting sucked into this like you know underlying like feeling that he has of just like this like underlying like sexual tension that's just like ready to explode and like of course like when he sees something like that like he's just kind of frozen exactly exactly no and i definitely like feel like that readings like that aren't necessarily uh they're not wrong they're not wrong 
I don't think there's a right answer to read off of it. Um, and that's kind of what I love in general about the vampire genre is that you can get so many different readings from so many different people that have different backgrounds that like not one is correct, but not one is wrong. If that makes sense. Oh no, 100% for sure. Um, but yeah, the, the movie does just have this like, you know, underlying like sexual tension throughout, like, you know, the first thing whenever Charlie mentions they have a new neighbor, the first thing his mom asks is like, you know, talk about like, oh, he's probably probably married or something like, you know, because she's all she has on her mind even is like she's lonely and like wants to bang. Everybody's very, um, you know, has this this sexual tension within it. And that's just like every scene that Jerry is on screen too, like because like even in the opening scene, like he sees Charlie looking and like, you know, just like this is the first instance of like uh, whenever we were watching this, my friends, they hadn't seen it. And they were just like, Jerry doesn't give a fuck. I was like, no, not about anyone or anybody <laughs> like he he just feeds into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of makes it great in a way. Fright Night exists in this this place in me that like. I don't want to say it was an awakening in me about a lot of things, but it it, it kind of was unintentionally. Like I did not know like a movie could be like so sexually tense without being just straight up sexual throughout it. Yeah, that is a good point because I mean, yeah, we do get to we do get to see some boobies in the opening scene, but that's about it. Like for the rest of the movie, like yeah, like there is the sexual tension, but there there's not anything like that that we see besides from that opening scene. Um, but it, it it's able to like you know establish that and then just like kind of keep it uh going throughout the rest of the film mm-hmm. and like you know definitely uh through uh chris sarandon's performance like and like you know the way that they style jerry um he just exudes this you know confidence to him but then like the that's where uh a lot of the famous queer readings come in here is you know, Jerry is this bisexual vampire icon because, you know, we got Jerry, but then we also have his, um, his, uh, ghoul friend, Billy, Billy Cole. And, um, even though it's like never like overtly like mentioned or anything, obviously, but the way that they like kind of play it and then like, um, the idea that like, you know, he calls himself Jerry's roommate and Jerry has this going on, but then like, obviously he's like outwardly like he's always seducing women as it to like cover up you know the insecurity it has or is he just like obviously very comfortable with his sexual desires i don't think there exists like a straight vampire or vampire movie i'm trying to think of one as like strictly like hetero and none come to mind because that's what's great about the genre it is so like sexually fluid that it's like i think it resonates so much with the queer community because of it like it's not held back by anything exactly like um previously mentioned on on the last episode you know mike talked about vampires like we we don't understand because like we can't understand their idea of sexuality because they're like you know their idea of sexuality is completely different to us of you know being these different creatures that can just stand in for like yeah the ultimate fluidity you know that was something that's prevalent in the hunger as well you know but like all the characters you know have a very forward like androgynous look to them and um kind of showing like you know they all fall like in a similar area on the scale but just like in slight variations so it's like yeah like there is just like when it comes to vampires this just like ultimate you know 
sexuality that is like you know encompassing of everything but also like so wholly different you know to anything human and i think that's like you know why vampires are kind of this queer sexual icon throughout the genre which is ironic because the cast member of this movie went on to do gay porn yes very ironic (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is a not not a funny tidbit but i'm just like oh yeah i'm like you know queer people have always been in the vampire and horror space so you know those readings they don't come from nowhere Oh, yeah. And then it's like, and again, it's like the film, like, you know, doesn't go out of its way to like put these things out either, but there are like other sprinklings in it too. Like how Evil Ed's always calling Charlie a fruitcake. I don't know if that's again, like if Jerry's supposed to like represent is like, are they supposed to allude more to Charlie's inner sexual dilemmas? Maybe that was like some stuff that might have been written in that might not have been filmed or might have been cut out but like that's like a recurring theme that like kind of keeps coming out too so it's like is that what jerry's supposed to like represent to charlie but they never give enough of that to charlie's character as much as i like the remake i feel like the remake was missing a lot of like the sexual like tension and whatnot and kind of the the queerness of it it's there a little bit but it's not there nearly as much as this movie which is a shame because this movie once again is in the category of the hunger that it's not all that accessible yeah this movie like is always like on and off streaming services like very quickly but yeah the the remake yeah didn't really lean into um a lot of these uh sexual themes it just like you know colin farrell was really hot in the movie but like we we don't so it's like we have a hot vampire but there's no there wasn't a sexiness to the film though itself you know little tidbits between like more character details but then also like you know the way that they film this you know movie with such an overabundance of fog you know and the the styling whether it be the the way that jerry wears his cardigans and trench coats i mean there's like every other little detail you know still oozes you know the the sexuality and sex appeal of the movie um whether the story of it is touching on it or not you know like it it, it does just have a sexier vibe to it mm-hmm. yeah definitely put this one in the sexy vampire category <laughs> Oh, 100%. I mean, we obviously have to talk about the iconic club scene, the club dance scene, um, where Jerry is seducing Amy on the dance floor, as any queer vampire would. And, um, you know, it's like just the the looks that he gives. And I meant to mention it earlier, too, because they they pay a lot of attention to Jerry's hands. Because, man, Chris Sarandon has some sexy-ass hands in this movie. Uh, shout out to whoever was doing his manicures. He has some great hands. Um, but this dance scene, though, is uh, so great. But then also I love the, like, mirror trick whenever Amy finally, like, realizes, like, what's going on. And it's, like, this visual of dancing with a vampire and then, like, the reflection making it look like you're dancing with yourself. This scene is everything. It's it's a great play on that. Like I said, what makes this stand out so much from The Hunger is that it leans so much into, like, those vampire tropes but it does it in a way that it's not like uh i've seen this before it's more of like oh that's a solid ass take on that (laughs) and it's like you know doing doing something creative with it but then it also like 
you know, even has this moment that's, like, a little different, like, she does realize, you know, what's going on, but then, like, still, like, can't fight his, you know, seduction off, and, like, um, very, uh, very, very cool play on, yeah, that standard scene, um, you know, this is also how Peter Vincent, you know, figures out that Jerry's a vampire as well, but, yeah, this, uh, this movie, um, it's interesting, to again like you know kind of uh look at especially compared to um something like the hunger that you know really they're both bringing sexy vampire but in just like such distinctly different ways um but they pair up really nice together yeah it's just sexy vampires and sarandons yeah that's that's all you need um and uh yeah Sexy vampires, Sarandons, that is a key to success for you. For Sexy sure. queer vampires and Sarandons. <laughs> yeah, very, very upset we didn't really get to see like a full, full sexy um, vampire Susan Sarandon in, in The Hunger. Um, you know, to see her maybe just, she should have been able to like take Miriam's place and then give us that, that moment. Because, you know, that's for us. Isn't it also ironic that Fright Night is coming back? Yeah, um, yeah, super, I, I wish, you know, I almost ended up doing, like, this entire month was gonna almost be all sexy vampires for, like, all of it, because, like, we are, like, so saturated with it, which, like, I mean, I'm not complaining too much, but at the same time, like, let's give us some more queer monsters, you know, like, we, we could always use more werewolves, like, even more sexy sea monsters, I mean, there's so many options, but yet we keep always coming back around to sexy vampires yes it's a uh, just an easy thing to do um i am glad that fright night is coming back with not a remake but a, a direct sequel to the original i think that'll be interesting did they say are they not counting the original fright night sequel so um i pulled it right up here in my personal notes uh in October 2020, Tom Holland announced that he is writing a direct sequel to the original Fright Night with the working title of Fright Night Resurrection. The plot will more directly follow the events of the first film and will not incorporate elements from the sequel. Holland confirmed the return of the original characters, saying, quote, I'm bringing back everybody I can. I'm calling it Resurrection because we've got to resurrect Billy Cole and Jerry. Uh-huh. Interesting. So it'll be like kind of one of those retconning rebukles. If you will. Which I had never seen the sequel because that you want to talk about an inaccessible movie. It's that. Yeah, I, I think nobody wants you to see that one. I have not seen it uh, myself either, but interesting that it's a uh, good comeback in that capacity. But uh, again, you know, I think it's um, I do always feel better when it is the original creator coming back to do it. So I am intrigued. Yeah, I'll definitely watch it just just because I love this one so much. I mean, I'll give it a shot. Um, God, I, I think Sony owns the right to this movie because they did the remake. Um, and yeah, they need to give this one another home media release because the current Blu-rays of it are like reaching like triple digits. Really? Yeah, it is like, I think Twilight Time put it out in 2015. It was like limited to 5,000 copies. It sold out and then Sony put it out themselves. But I'm not sure if that release actually happened because it was like right before pandemic that that was announced. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. Again, it's like the accessibility, you know, always begs the question of like, you know, if more money was put into like restorations and like, you know, better copies and things like that would that bypass the need for remakes you know interesting um you know how the movie landscape works mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but uh, this was a a really great pairing. Um, great uh, to talk about these movies together. Um, it makes for you know I can attest to having two people that hadn't seen either one. They had a great time on this double feature. So if you uh, need a '80s queer sexy vampire double feature, definitely pair these two together. But to uh, close out the show, as I've been asking the previous guests, is you know I I intrigued on everybody's perspective on what makes horror as a genre like you know such a good vehicle to uh tell some of these queer stories i think because horror has no rules um in a way that horror is like we have like a million vampire movies right and mm-hmm. and so many of them are just unique takes on this tale that's old as time mm-hmm. so i think the moment you get queer people involved is we tend to put a lot of ourselves into our own work so when that happens when we get involved in like horror and filmmaking and whatnot that no matter how hard we can try to keep it out or that somebody tries erasing it it's always just gonna like poke its like head through like like when somebody who hasn't come out has like gay thoughts it's just always there (laughs) I mean, yeah, and that can be said for, you know, horror as a genre in general. It's always had these roots in, you know, queer queer storytelling. But um but yeah, I mean, no rules is like practically like why I want to make horror movies to begin with in general too. It's like when you have no rules, like that makes it easier or more accessible to like tell, you know, more complicated stories, you know, stories with more complicated themes or um stories to them you know, that are more specific, you know, so it's like, you know, by broadening the filmmaking box, you can kind of get more, more specific with the stories. It's a genre where a comedian like Jordan Peele can come in and direct a horror movie and have that movie be nominated for best picture at the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the possibilities it's like, you know, especially like when you realize like, you know, how, you know, kids like that works out easily because it's like, horror is so similar to comedy and like the way that they're written and set up. And then it's like, you know, you can use that for, you know, pretty much almost any other subgenre as well. You know, I think that's why horror works so well as a great subgenre as well. When you pair it together, whether it be horror comedy or a horror sci-fi or, you know, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I like that you brought up that horror and comedy are very similar because I always see people ask, well, how did Jordan Peele make the jump? And I'm like, those are two genres that are constantly evolving. And like you said, have the same setup that it's like, oh, it's a no brainer that all these comedy guys like making the jump to horror. Exactly. It's like, it's already in there, you know, structurally, like, I mean, a joke and a scare, you know, pretty much written the same way. But then it's like, again, like, you know, that's why you can tell so many queer stories through horror as well, because the the fear of the unknown and, you know, but then also a fear that you have as like an outsider as well is always been intrinsic to horror. And that's something that, you know, has always been constantly relatable to the queer communities. It'll always, you know, be great to tell these stories. Oh, yeah, it's. You know, queer people belong in horror and in horror spaces. And, you know, well, we're, we're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> Damn straight. Uh, yeah, I appreciate having you on, um, having this conversation and talking these movies. Um, it was uh, so great that you introduced me to The Hunger. So I appreciate that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Yeah, not a problem. It was truly an honor to come on. Thank you so much for asking me. Yes, of course. And uh, what are you working on these days? Where can people find you? So you can find me on social media at JFC Doomblade. My work is being published pretty regularly at bloodydisgusting.com and rumorg.com. I also got an exciting new horror byline in the works that I'll probably announce pretty soon that I can't say just yet. Um, And if you're interested, I run a podcast called Horror in Session at Horror in Session where me and my co-host who's a total newbie to the genre I basically assign her movies each week and we come on and talk about them so if you care to listen to us we're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts yeah definitely check out Horror in Session it's a uh, really fun podcast I love getting the two wildly different perspectives it's uh it like feels similar to uh, the episodes I've done on the podcast where I've had my best friend on um, who could care less about horror movies. Um, I like getting um, the two like wildly different perspectives. So uh, definitely go and check that out, guys. I'll make sure uh, links are in the show notes for all of that. And um, what is coming up here on the podcast? Well, the films have progressively gotten gayer and queerer as we've went on. And so we will be um, closing the month out with um, some queer mermaids. Uh, we will be talking Blew My Mind, and also the first time I will be doing a redux of a movie here on the podcast, because we're talking the lore again, um, because when I initially talked the lore, um, we were like on a time constraint, didn't really get to get into it much, especially um, not really getting into the queer themes of that film, and I love that film a lot, so um, covering that one once again. Um, but yeah, so make sure you guys are subscribed so you don't miss that out. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would very much appreciate it if you left five stars and a nice little comment. It helps the podcast get into more people's ear holes. But that will go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Make sure you are following the podcast page at Bloody Blunt CC. And make sure you are following me at underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram. And until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>